Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. I think I just blew Scott's ears I think my ears are too loud. No, it's fine. I'm just kidding. (laughs) He just did a whole jump back (laughs) when I started talking. Sorry. (laughs) We're already off the rails. Oh, yeah. How many seconds is? Seven. Yeah. Seven seconds and we're off the rails. Is it a new record? Probably. Probably. Hey, happy late Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Well, we should have thought of that last week, huh? I dropped the ball last week on that (laughs) one. Wasn't going to say anything. My bad. But uh, happy late Father's Day. Thank you to all the the fathers and the the strong, wonderful men in our lives. We salute you. We would not be here without you. We would not. Thank Literally. you so much. Literally. Literally. Thanks. Let's not get into that. <laughs> but, Let's keep it PG-13, folks. But that is true. Um, so welcome, everybody. We are in the middle of a heat wave. Oh, yes, we are. We're having a heat wave. Go on and finish. A tropical heat wave. Uh, okay, don't finish. <laughs> it's hot. It's hot. It is. It's It's been miserably hot. It's going to be miserably hot again this week. I think I saw 99 mm-hmm. in the Record weather forecast for later this week. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, uh, stay hydrated. James Fan has said record Record highs. James Fan was was in town recently. He was at our local coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Damned I, good coffee, I think it's called. It is. Mm-hmm. They're not a sponsor, but they could be. <laughs> they could be if they want to. Sean Edwards could be. Um. So okay, I didn't get to go see him, but did did you guys get to go see him? We weren't in town. I was sad. I was there, but I didn't go and speak to. James Spann, but I saw him from a distance. I was in the other part of the uh, establishment. You were at the bar. I was at Go the bar. ahead and say it. Yeah, I was I was doing my <laughs> barfly thing, which is all that I'm good at. Well, uh, from what I saw on social media, there was a big long line. Everybody here yes. loves James Spann. If you're not local and you're listening to our podcast, James Spann is a weatherman from the state of Alabama. People love him. ABC 3340, he's in his early to mid-60s. He's been doing it for a long time. Everybody our age has grown up Mm-hmm. watching James Spann tell us when to duck and cover. That's right. And you can tell that it's severe weather if the jacket is off and the sleeves are rolled up. Yes. That's a big deal if the sleeves are rolled up. Mm-hmm. So he will interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. For hours at a time. To tell you everything. I mean, I don't think there's a person in the state of Alabama that knows the landscape of Alabama. It's it's nuts better. to see him talk about, like, they will zoom in on an area that's in our neighborhood, some little community that, mediocre journalist that I am, I don't even know the name of this little crossroads, but James Spann <laughs> he does. Knows. He's he like, that's it. the Natville community, and there's a stop sign here, and a big oak tree here, and an and old if barn you're there. there, take cover. Yeah, yeah, jump in a ditch, or yeah. put a mattress over your head. There's a tornado coming. Exactly. So so we all love James Fan and and when you think of him, you think respect the polygon. That's mm. a phrase. That's, he's a, kind that's of his phrase. He's kind of coined around yeah. here. So anyways, just to, to just let some of you know who might not be local, who the heck we're talking about. The most famous uh, television personality in the state of Alabama is James Spann. I would fathom a guess. Yep. Right. Yep. And so, anyways, he he was in our little small town recently, and and some folks got to go, some friends of mine, uh, Jana and Stephanie, got their picture. I saw them there, and if you pick up a copy of the Cherokee Post-Herald on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. which is the day you're listening to this out there. Good morning. It's Wednesday morning. Yes. uh, That is the front page above the fold story in the Post-Herald this week. Nice. About James's visit. I believe that. Some other local celebrities have been featured there as well, right, Scott? Uh, you'll have to remind me. Did you 
weren't we featured there at one point? Oh, of course we were. Yeah, yeah, but we we didn't get the spot that James Spann gets. We were never could. We were somewhere else, but we had a bigger photo. Okay. Oh, all right. So, never say never. There yeah, you go. I, I know the asshole who works at the newspaper, so I made sure that that got done that way. Good for you. That being me. Thank you for talking to him. For You're us. welcome. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. And we have another two-parter. Is that safe to say? Yes. Can I go ahead and say that? That's right. All right. It's a two-parter. And we are uh, closer to home than we were last week. Mm-hmm. Where were we last week? <sighs> that was last week. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, we that's were out OJ. in California last week. We, we did OJ. OJ. That's right. That's right. This week we are in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And so that's just about, what is that? 90 minutes. Co- is it 90 minutes yes. away from here? Yeah. Okay. If you I'll want to go low. to Hartsfield Jackson International Airport, you will be there in 90 minutes if you leave here right now. All right, Scott, take it away. I can't wait to learn this week's case. Well, uh, we'll see how this goes. I feel like I have overprepared to the point that I ran out of places in my brain to put information. So we're going to take a swing at it. We may have to garbage this whole thing and just start over and do a double parter. Katie, get ready for the edits. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. So guys, what we're going to talk about is something that happened uh, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. And I grew up here and I was I was 9, 10 and 11 years old in 79, 80 and 81 when the Atlanta child murders were happening. Kelly and I were not born yet. Oh, I, I actually was. What? I was oh, one. I can't do math. Were you oh. watching television? No. Okay. Because I was and there were only 3 channels back then because I lived over if you guys know if you're not familiar with the geography here that's fine but these two ladies are so I'm going to tell you guys where I grew up. You know where Hart and Store is over in Cedar Bluff between Cedar Bluff and Galesville? I do. Okay, so I lived in the second house on the left behind Harton's store. That's where I grew up. All right. And we did not have cable television. We did not have a satellite dish because that wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we had a 40-foot-tall metal antenna strapped mm-hmm. to our television set, mm-hmm. and it was pointed towards Atlanta. Okay. Because we could not point it towards Birmingham and get the Birmingham networks because the Appalachians are in the way. But I could point it towards Atlanta. Yeah, cause and I the- say I could because it was me out there doing it most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're in the valley over there. So exactly, it was and a it, whole ordeal to change the. Antenna. Oh God! Until we got the automatic thing that on automatic the automatic thing was amazing. That was that was the best thing in the world. And it made some weird ever. noise like the ice cream maker, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, you could hear it. It yeah. was yeah. It's there's you know, a it's, lot of people who are who are really relating to what we're talking it's, about. And it's then plastic gears grinding together, turning your <laughs> antenna outside, and pointing it towards the stations that you wanted to watch. And when I was a kid, that was the three Atlanta networks. It was Channel 2, Channel 5, and Channel 11. And I bet you this was covered constantly. Constantly. Uh, during the, especially about the middle of the summer of 1980 is really when it, uh, when the networks and the news media, CNN was a brand new thing in Atlanta. So once this case became declared a possible serial killer case, Everybody jumped on it. Everybody was in it every day. I just recently read, uh, earlier today, I read an article from the Atlanta Journal that breaks down this whole thing that I, I don't know why it didn't occur to me until the last second to check out the Atlanta Journal's website and see what they might have written about it in 79 and 80 and 81, but I did, and sure enough, there's a lot. I bet. 
So anyway, when I was a kid, I sat cross-legged on the floor like all kids did back then in front of this giant TV. It looked like a refrigerator turned over on its side. I think I've said that before. Well, and you've already mentioned that your mother loved watching court TV. (laughs) Yes. So this was a precursor to that. So before court TV came along, mom got her uh, chops. uh, She whetted her appetite on crime by watching the Atlanta child murders case unfold on those three Atlanta networks when I was a kid. So that was something that was going on back then when I was a kid, which is why this case stood out to me. But just briefly, let's talk about Atlanta for a bit, because Atlanta wasn't around uh, in the 1830s. Atlanta wasn't a place. The reason that Atlanta is a place today is because it's the first flat area south of the Appalachians and back then they were building railroads everywhere. So the first name of what we know today as Atlanta was a place called Terminus. And Terminus was where all of the railroads ended. It's where the all of the mile markers on the railroads that went all over the country started on the number zero in Atlanta. It was where everything terminated. Well, I just learned something new. Just Wow. That's why it was called Terminus. But in 1836, the Georgia legislature passed a law to build a rail, railroad line from the port in Savannah to what became Terminus so that they could send products to the rest of the country. Makes sense. It, it, it was a big deal at the time. And then in 1847, finally, uh, the, the place had gone through a couple of name changes. Somebody finally suggested Atlanta, which is the feminine of Atlantis, I learned. Just this morning. I just learned something else now. Yeah. That's two things. Let's let's play a drinking game. Every time we learn something new, let's, let's like have it. a sip. All right. Well, I brought some, uh, I brought some <laughs> beverages from next door, so right. I'm, I'm good. Are you me. guys okay? Oh, well, I'm due for two sips, so excuse me. Oh, here. You want this? No, I got something. Oh, oh never mind. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, all right. I'm almost done, I swear. So in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta was finally incorporated in 1847. Anybody want to take a stab at how many... Residents there were officially of the city of Atlanta on the day it was incorporated in 1847. Whatever number you pick, it's going to be lower. Okay, I'm going to pick 800. Katie? 500. Three. I mean, I'm sorry, 30. It was 30. 30 people. There were 30, 30 people three, in oh. Atlanta. Oh my gosh. Okay, no. In 1847. Here we go. Yeah. Another <laughs> This is going to be fun. No, it's really not. So the Civil War comes along and Atlanta becomes a big important area during the Civil War. We've all heard of Sherman's March to the Sea and the burning of Mm -hmm. the city of Atlanta. And that's why it was where all the railroads met. Right. So it was a big deal. Um, Fast forward to the 50s and Atlanta has become one of the most progressive cities in the South. It's, uh, it's, it's, It's not really the new South just yet, but the interstate system has come along and the black community really gets a handle on Atlanta and the city starts to grow in a way that a lot of Southern cities don't because a lot of cities try to suppress the black minorities mm-hmm. in their cities. Atlanta was the opposite story. They welcomed, welcomed people from yes. all walks of life, sort of. To, to, to an extent that didn't exist anywhere else in the South okay. at the time, okay, uh, for sure. And then in the 60s, Delta declared that their new hub Mm-hmm. Worldwide Hub would be in Atlanta, and I think Birmingham was in a running for that at, for some amount of time. But it ended up being Atlanta in the 60s, and so Atlanta really started to grow then. And we have the civil rights movement going on in the 60s and, and desegregation. There was a lot of white flight from the inner city in Atlanta during this time, which is why by the mid-70s, 
you had a black mayor, Maynard Jackson, and you had a predominantly black city council, and you had a a black man who his name was uh, Lee Brown. He was the public service commissioner, which makes him the head of the police department mm-hmm. and everything else related to public service. Uh, it, there were still different levels of economic security among the black community in Atlanta at the time. There was there was a well-to-do portion of that community that owned and operated businesses on Auburn Avenue and were very successful. There was the middle class that worked and provided all of the services that you would imagine that the middle class would provide. And then there was the lower class and they started building uh, housing, federal housing projects in the area around what is Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. And would that have been during the Carter years? Uh, Carter was... Wasn't he known for that, for building... Possibly, because that would have been... I mean, Carter was elected in November of 76 and took office in January of 77. So a lot of those balls were already rolling in Atlanta, but certainly a Democratic administration in Washington Mm -hmm. and a a black Democratic mayor in Atlanta. I'm sure they worked together pretty well to get federal dollars into the city. And and don't forget, Delta's there. Coca-Cola is there. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's... there are four predominantly uh, uh, historical, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Yes. There are four of those in Atlanta. Okay. So it, a, very, uh, a very modern city, especially if you were a black person looking to move to the South, Atlanta was where you came. Sure. And, and you know, you, you, you take your shot at success just like everybody else does. So that's what's happening in the mid 70s in Atlanta. And then all of a sudden, on July the 28th, 1979, two young black children are found murdered. Mm -hmm. Their bodies are found in a rural area. There's a woman out picking up cans, trying to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. Again, not everybody succeeded in 70s Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And this woman was one of them. Her name has been lost in time. But she found the first two bodies of what became 28 young black people murdered in Atlanta between July of 1979 and May of 1981. And I watched all of this unfold every night when the five o'clock news came on sitting cross-legged in front of my television. 28, 28, 28 total before it was finished. So bodies just kept popping up. Yeah. Once they started, they really didn't stop. And the city was, um, the city didn't know how to deal with this. The, the, no, I don't think any city. I don't think any city would prepared either. Prepared for this, but this what, is horrible. But what really turned out to be a problem for the for the black majority that lived in downtown Atlanta at the time was the fact that you got a black mayor, you got a black public service commissioner. The police department is increasingly becoming. Uh, not as white as it had been mm-hmm. in decades past, because there were a lot of. Ku Klux Klan members who doubled as police officers in Atlanta, if you believe the stories that I've heard in the last couple of weeks. So the black community didn't really have a lot of faith in the Atlanta Police Department. Right. Makes sense. And so when these kids started turning up missing, and then they started being found dead, and nothing was being done in the mind of the black community to stop it from happening, the black community turned on their black mayor and their black public service commissioner and accused them of not doing enough. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story, but basically that was what was going on in 79 and 80, especially in 80. Well, and I'm just going to say, I, there is nobody that's going to blame that. It, it doesn't matter 
when you have 28 children dead, it's time to, I mean, it's well past time to turn on someone. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter gender. You know, there's 28 dead children. Somebody do something. Well, don't forget that this happened. It happened over time. Yeah, I knew it took, it, yeah. it, but, but still. Sure. I mean, you don't get to 28 and go, okay, now. 29 is the number. We can't right. go past this. That's entire. I mean, one is too many, but 28 over the course of time, that's, yeah. I, I'm, I understand that. So the first two kids who were found on July the 28th, 1979, uh, one, uh, Alfred, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you all 28 kids names. We will post that, uh, on our website or our, on our media so that you can, we want to honor these victims and Absolutely. make sure that they get what they, uh, the recognition that they deserve. Absolutely. But we're not going to go through every single one of them. But the first two, Alfred William, I'm sorry, Alfred Evans was 13. Mm. Edward Smith was 14. And they died in two completely different ways. They were found in the same area, but they had one had been there for just a few days. The other had been there for a few weeks. Nobody has yet put together that this might be. It's there we've got two bodies. Right well, now. when you have two bodies and you have two different, different types of death, yes. it I can understand that. Certainly. And then no, nobody. That's July. In October, a nine-year-old young man named Yusef Bell, and don't forget the last name Bell because okay. that's going to be important. Okay. He is found strangled to death, nine years old. Good gracious. Uh, a week later, another death. Milton Harvey, he was 14. By the middle of March of 1980, we're up to six dead children, all under mysteriously familiar circumstances. They're all between the ages of nine and 14. Most of them have been strangled. So a lot of similarities in the way that they've been found, but also a lot of disparities, not necessarily anything that you could connect together. And Right. Some strangled, some smothered, which is called, you know, you'll see asphyxiation a right. lot. But then- And one was shot with a gun. Right. The first one. Yes. The very first child, and some would speculate later that the person who, and we're not going to say the name of the person who ended up in jail for this until the very end of this episode, unless I screw up and forget. Uh, so, fifty, yeah, take a drink on that. One of the references that I will uh, bring to your attention over the course of this episode is a man named John E. Douglas. He was an FBI profiler. If you have watched Mindhunter oh, yes. on Netflix, John E. Douglas is the person that the main character in that show is is fashioned after. Which one? There are two. There's an older gentleman, the, and the a younger of the two gentlemen, and I can't believe I can't remember the that actor's from, name. The guy from Hamilton. He was in Hamilton. Was he? Yeah. He's he also played, in the new Matrix movie. Yeah, he played. Yeah, he was. He played uh, King George in uh, okay. Hamilton. Well, he's a very good actor, and he. If you watched Mindhunter, you're familiar with this guy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he said. That, and I'm quoting here, there were as many differences as similarities among the cases of the initial six children, unquote. Yeah. So it was the city, the city of Atlanta, the police department had not yet put together that this might all be the work of possibly one individual. Because, yeah, they, they, it wasn't cookie cutter all the same. Exactly. And, you know, some would speculate later that the murderer, the killer was still refining his technique. Perhaps that's why the first victim was a gunshot wound. And then others, he went to other methods. Mm. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into that next week. So we get to the point where we're in April of 1980 now. And some other bodies have turned up. And Yusef Bell's mother, her name is Camille. Okay. 
And Camille is not having it. And she shouldn't. There is not enough being done. The police department, she has decided, and some other parents of these first few victims have decided that these must all be related. There's, there's a common denominator here. They've all been picked up at night, disappeared when they were just going to the store and back, or, you know, most, for the most part, these were good kids. They did live on the streets a lot. They were able to stay out at night. Everybody hung out, mm-hmm. just like we would all hang out here in the country. These kids all hung out in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, but they're all, they're starting to turn up missing. And Camille Bell makes a public case out of it. She goes to Maynard Jackson's office and says, you need to be telling the people of Atlanta, the black families who live in these areas of Atlanta, that there is possibly a serial killer on the loose. Mm-hmm. Protect your children. We need to stop this. The city of Atlanta has made all of these economic gains in the last 50 years, 30, 40 years. Delta's there, Coca-Cola. They're bringing in outside investors, really growing the city and turning it into the city that they want it to be. The city that is too busy to hate is their slogan. Okay. Because they don't want to be associated with the, the, the racism and the segregation that has been standard fare for the rest of the South for the last 50 years. This is the one progressive spot in the South mm-hmm. where you don't have to deal with that. So they don't want to screw that up. Right, but but Camille's got a point. Um, Certainly, let let people know. Yes, people need to. They need to know to keep their children well, close, keep them inside. Don't her they? cries fell on deaf ears, at least for a, a little bit longer. And what was the reasoning behind that? Did 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 they ever give? They didn't want to create a panic. Oh. Okay, you know there's there's all these rumors flying about. Maybe the uh, the Ku Klux Klan had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else hates black people more than the Ku Klux Klan, right? Yeah. So that's that's a conspiracy theory that gets floated around mm-hmm. several times over the course of this investigation. There's never any concrete proof that that was ever anything. There was ever anything to that. There's there's a story no, that we'll get to next. I mean, week, I can understand that being certainly a, an organization. to yeah. suspect. Yeah, I mean, Stone Mountains there with the big uh, uh, Confederate carving on the side of the mountain. J.B. Stoner was one of the most uh, ridiculous racists of all of the ridiculous racists who ever lived. Mm. Uh, and he was located in Atlanta. But at the same time, you had Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, uh, he he had, one of his bases had been Atlanta. And you had a lot of other guys that were uh, civil rights activists who made Atlanta sort of their home base. So there was just, they were at loggerheads all the time, these two sides of the race issue. And Atlanta was holding its own. Mm-hmm. But the politicians there just don't want to create a panic. Correct. Because and they don't want to make all of those people who are bringing their money into Atlanta. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. And let me ask you this. Was this near an election year? 78, I guess, would have been an election year for the mayor's race. Mm-hmm. Because I think it was 74 when Maynard Jackson won his first. Uh, I'm just saying that might have been. I'm sure it did. When you're, We all know how politics mm-hmm. works. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that probably had something to do with it as well. Um, so, we get to a year later, and we've got nine missing and murdered children. Five bodies have been found at this point. Four still missing. That's one year into this. So, that's, that's June, the first of June of 1980. And this is about the time that I remember that the case became something that everybody realized, hey, this is a, we've got, something's going on in Atlanta. And every news network led with the story every night on its newscast. 
because more often than not, other children were being found or being reported missing at least. So in June of 1980, Latanya Wilson, she's eight years old. She gets abducted from her house and she turns up dead a few days later. It turns out that probably this didn't have anything to do with the Atlanta child murders per se, but she was added to the list of potential victims just because it was weird circumstances. Well, at this point in time, we still don't know. We still don't know. We still don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah, like at all. An eight-year-old from her home. Her body was found after, her body was found later, but it was after the local community decided that they'd had enough with the inaction from the police department. Okay, good. So the community and Camille Bell and all, she forms this group called uh, Stop the Child Murders. I think it's called, I'm sorry, the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, Stop for short. Okay. And so they get together with the, uh, the city council at this point is willing to get involved. And so they create these volunteer groups that go out on Saturdays. They're called Saturday searches. Mm -hmm. The very first Saturday search that they ever conducted, over 600 people showed up. They're scouring areas of the city, overrun areas. Yes. Because the police department in their eyes, the police department's not doing anything. Right. Uh, the public service commissioner saying, everybody stay calm. And they're like, our kids are dying. We're not staying calm. The first point. ever day that they had one of these Saturday searches, they found the body of Latanya Wilson in, in a field. And they found, I think they found um, three more in the couple of months that they did it, that they conducted these Saturday searches. Several these of these children. These yeah, are they're, civilians. Yeah, they're volunteers. They're college students. They're off-duty police officers. They're just people in the community. They're pastors and, and, and preachers. Just whoever doesn't have anything to do on Saturday and wants to grab a stick and walk through a, a, a wooded area and see what you can find. And yeah, they found LaTanya. Wow. Mm. So finally, after that happens, oh, and here's another little tidbit. A couple of days before they found her body, the police had said, we've already searched that area. Everything's fine there. No. Like two days before. Were they lying or just incompetent? Probably a little bit of both. But I, I don't have any confirmation of which it was. Okay. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. No. Um, but that was in June. And then on July the 17th of 1980, the public service commissioner, Lee Brown, who is black, uh, a resident of Atlanta, he finally sets up the murdered, I'm sorry, the missing and murdered task force. Okay. So the, this is the city admitting we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to keep hey, it under wraps anymore. Hey, city, you've had a problem. Yeah. We, we admit now that probably something is going on here and we don't know what it is. And so we've established a separate task force that is going to try and figure out what's going on here. Okay. Isn't this also when the FBI gets involved with this task force? Not yet. Okay. They try to. The, they, they reach out to the FBI and... The FBI has this rule. They can't get involved in something unless it involves more than one state. It's a, they're, the, they're an interstate federal law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. If it's contained to the state of Georgia, that's your problem. But if somebody crosses state lines with a kidnapped victim or they mm-hmm. buy a knife in Alabama to stab someone within Georgia. Okay. So you, you then the establish. FBI can get involved. Okay. And so it's, uh, over the summer, the city of Atlanta is trying to get the FBI involved. They can't find a way to do it. They expand the task force. Uh, they begin having weekly briefings with the media in September. And the FBI briefly gets involved because 
the, the family of one of these kids says, we got a phone call that said that they kidnapped our son and took him to Alabama. So the FBI gets involved briefly for a short time. They realize that that phone call is a hoax. And so the FBI is back out again. So they're just pulling out all the stops that they can. Or, or did, did they actually get this phone call or did they tell them they got this phone well, call? Well, that's... Just to try to get them involved. Yeah. I mean, I can't really blame them for doing sure. that if they, if they, if they need, that. Yeah, if they need us across state lines, let's, let's bullshit them and tell them we got a phone call and, and he's in Alabama. And then get, get in. And, well, but then they had to vet that and figure out. They vetted it and figured out that it was not accurate. So between then, uh, in September and October, uh, at least two more young black children... <sighs> go missing. Finally, in November of 1980, Mayor Jackson travels to Washington and visits Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan in okay. the White House. Okay. And magically, on November the 6th of 1980, the FBI is involved in the case. I imagine that Ronald Reagan said, figure out a way. Mm-hmm. Because it was... They got some sort of executive order that it said... It had gotten so going, big... Guess what? You're going to Atlanta. The, the the Atlanta child murders case was so big by November of 1980 that... And Ronald Reagan was trying to do his best to, to bring the country back together. I mean, we'd had a few rough years by 1980. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's just in office. I mean, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute. The election... That wouldn't even have been Reagan at that point, right? I mean, because the election's in November of 80, and Reagan's not sworn yeah. in until January of so 81. Be, um, so that's still Carter. Yeah. Yeah. I swear that Reagan was in the in the little brief well, scene that I watched, but they, it would have still been Carter, they right? Could've, you know, somebody could have spoken to him or got his opinion on what he thought should be happening, but he wouldn't have. Maybe that was it. Of. Maybe it was just a press conference and he wasn't present yet, because that wouldn't be right. He wouldn't have been sworn in until... January the 20th, 1981. So it was Carter that gave this order and got the FBI there. Yeah. Okay. And so that's when the FBI comes in. And if you've watched season two of Mindhunter, there is a segment, there's a couple of episodes towards the end of season two where they deal specifically with the Atlanta child murders case. It's not the entire season. There's a lot going on in Mindhunter in season two, mm-hmm. but eventually they get towards the end of that 10 part series where they're dealing with the Atlanta and they, they cover a lot of that, the unrest in the community. Yes. And this, this somebody mother, plays Camille this bell. Somebody plays her mother who I just, I could not mm-hmm. imagine what it felt like to walk in her shoes yeah. and to have to scream from the rooftops. Somebody do something. Somebody help us. Our kids are missing. Our, our kids are disappearing and, and you don't and care. They're, and they're dying. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. When the FBI gets there and Douglas and another uh, FBI profiler named Roy Hazelwood get involved, there are 16 missing and murdered children at this point. Good. We're up to 16 on our way to 28. That's in November of 1980. So it doesn't take Douglas very long to realize, and this is a very controversial thing that he does while he's investigating and trying to come up with a profile of who this killer might be. He and a couple of black Atlanta Police Department detectives drive through one of these neighborhoods and Douglas says, what's going on? Everybody's staring at us. This is weird. What's happening? And one of the cops kind of jokes and says, oh yeah, we got a honky in the car. Everything stops when a white guy comes into this neighborhood. Which makes Douglas immediately go, well, I know that the perpetrator is probably black because it's got to be somebody who is invisible in this community. If a black guy, if a white guy comes into this community, everybody's going to know Oh, yeah, at noon yesterday, there was a white guy in a pickup truck at the gas station down the street. It would be really hard for a white person, including someone who was a 
member of the KKK mm-hmm. to come into one of these black communities and take a 12 year old boy and nobody notice it. Well, and you got to think the children are not going to feel comfortable. Absolutely not. If a, if it's a white man driving through and trying to coerce them into his vehicle, yeah, they're not going to fall for that. No. And, and, and Douglas, suspicious. The, the Georgia Bureau of, of Investigation got tips about KKK involvement in the murders, but Douglas said, and I'm quoting, Klansmen don't wear white hoods to blend into the woodwork, unquote. That's true. So That's true. And his argument was, if the Klan was doing this, they would want everybody to know that the Klan was doing this. They would this. want to take They would credit. be proud of it. Yeah, yeah, gross. So just another X mark through Klan involvement. Mm-hmm. But still, you have these, these black families in these downtrodden communities in South Atlanta mm-hmm. who just want answers. But that's what's so wonderful and amazing about these these FBI profilers. I mean, they take anything and use it to to figure this out. I mean, yeah. Him immediately taking that and going, all right. It's a black man. We know it's... Yeah. And he took it a step further. He said, look, these kids, they're, they're, they're street kids. They're all... I don't want to use the word hustler in a bad way, but they're all kids who were, they're trying to figure out some way to make a few bucks. Like they'll go to the gas station and hang out and help an old lady take her groceries out to the car or mm-hmm. back to her house. Or uh, one of the kids, uh, Luby Jeter, that we'll get to in a minute, he sold uh, the little, uh, that you hang from your car mirror, uh, car deodorizers. Oh, yeah, you know, the pine air air yeah. fresheners. Mm-hmm. That was something that he did just to make, he'd go buy them for 10 cents a piece and sell them for a quarter and make yeah. some money. Mm-hmm. You know, just enough to have a, a Coca-Cola that, and a pack of peanuts. I call that uh, young entrepreneurs. Absolutely. But a lot of these kids fit that description. And yeah. so they were out on their own, mm-hmm. standing on street corners. But Douglas said, you know what? Still, the guy's not grabbing him by the arm and pulling him into the window. He's got some somebody that is familiar with these guys or, or, or knows their language or, or is familiar with the neighborhood is finding some way to coax him initially into his car. They're comfortable with this They're person. comfortable with this person. Mm-hmm. And they feel like there's a car involved because a lot of these bodies are turning up miles and miles and miles away from where they were so, last seen. And and the the... The victims themselves, when you look at the ages, you know, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old is a smaller child. But yeah. when you start getting into, you know, 14 years old, you know, you're going to want them to want to get in your car. It, it may be difficult to mm-hmm. wrestle them into your car. Yes. Yeah, especially, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's broad daylight particularly, but mm-hmm. yeah, you don't want to create a scene because then you've you've identified yourself as... yeah. A weirdo. Okay, so that makes sense that they're comfortable. Yeah. Here's here's a just a, a couple of sentences about the profile that they initially came up with uh, up for the potential perpetrator of the Atlanta child murders. Black male, single, age 25 to 29, a police buff, maybe drives a police-style vehicle, would at some point insert himself into the investigation. He probably owns a dog. He probably doesn't have a girlfriend. He's attracted to young boys, and he would use some sort of ruse to get you into his car, possibly something about being a performer in a band like the Jackson Five. And that's a little bit specific about what the profile said, but we'll get to that. Oh, interesting. Like I'm I am I'm a talent scout. Ooh, and I'm looking for the new Jackson Five is a big deal. I'm looking for they, the next Jackson Five. Come on in, let's go to my sound studio and record you singing and see how that turns uh, oh, how by that the turns way, out. Here's my dog. Would you like to Yeah, pet my dog while we drive over. Oh my goodness. That's yeah. disgusting. Hold that thought. Oh. 
So after this profile comes out, the Atlanta PD comes up with a, they come up with a list of known pedophiles. Now, let me stop you right there, sure. Scott, because you're you're bringing up, he's attracted to young boys and you're bringing up pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And I understand why, but just for for those of us who are just sort of learning as we go yeah. here, was there evidence of that? Not really. Not, there wasn't a lot of evidence in any of the bodies that they had found of any sort of sexual aspect to the murders, except for the fact that most of them were uh, stripped down to their underwear or to just a pair of shorts okay. or whatever. Okay. So, so there, there were no, there was no evidence of sexual assault. No, they were almost nude. Yes. They were there there was, room. yeah, there was no evidence of physical sexual contact. Gotcha. Okay. How about that? All right. Sorry. Maybe, no, Go no, ahead. I'm Go glad ahead. you did. Maybe some other sexual aspect, but nothing as specific as that. Okay. So based on this profile, the APB comes up with a, pro, a pedophile list, 1500 names long. Uh, the police and the FBI start to visit schools to talk to the children and explain to them, hey, don't get in the car with strangers. They rode school buses, handed out flyers. Some of the kids that were still missing, hey, have you seen these kids lately? The, where, where, were, where were you the last time you saw them? Uh, they even staked out gay bars to see if there were any suspicious conversations that they might overhear that would lead them in a direction, maybe, of a suspect. Okay. Okay, so let's fast forward to January the 3rd of 1981. There aren't any murders for a few months in the wintertime. Like no, from November until January, it's kind of quiet. Okay. And so then, what, what do we think about that? Well, it turns out maybe it just was too cold for the, the op- outside. To be, yeah. I mean, it's, okay. you know, it still gets pretty cold down here. Mm-hmm. Maybe this person had something else going on for a few months. Or maybe like, uh, Serial killer, the word serial killer, the phrase had only been around for about six or seven years when this started to happen. Mm-hmm. The FBI had only come up with this phrase, a serial killer. A lot of people didn't believe there were any black serial killers. A lot of people, and that was another reason why it was hard for some folks to think the guy had to be black mm-hmm. because there aren't black serial killers. That's a white guy thing. They're, they're middle-aged white men. Yes. Scott. Yeah. At the time. And that was just kind of, <laughs> yeah. Hello. That was just kind of what everybody thought about what a serial killer was because it was such a brand new term in in the crime lexicon. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and I mean, to this day, still, that's your majority. It is by a long shot. About 67% of serial killers are white Mm -hmm. and about 23% are black, uh, according to something I read uh, yesterday. But we get to the point where in January of 1981, a 14-year-old kid, and this is the kid who was selling the car deodorizers. His name was Luby Jeter. Okay. He was 14. He goes missing on January the 3rd, 1981. His body's found a month later, and it turned out that his abduction became one of the keys to solving the case because somebody saw a light-complexioned black man in a baseball cap talking to Luby before he disappeared and they gave a description and there was a composite sketch drawn and you can go look it up today. And when we tell you the name of the person that is in jail today for these crimes, it's amazing how similar that composite sketch is to what this person looks like. Okay. So that was a huge, it was the first time they'd ever had any really good eyewitness testimony about what might have been the way one of these kids disappeared. Uh, And then three weeks later, a kid named Terry Pugh, P-U-E, I guess I'm saying that right. He was 15. He was a friend of Luby Jeter's. 
Okay. He goes missing. And so now the cops think, wait a minute. We've got two kids who knew each other. They both disappeared under not kicking and screaming. Both of these kids must have known the person that killed them. Okay. So that's a so thought that's, process that's, anyway. That's narrowing down. That, it's narrowing that down. Layer. Yes. Correct. Uh, and then in February of 81, uh, Gene Dixon and I think Sullivan was the other person's last name. The psychics get involved. Psychics was a big thing mm-hmm. back in the late seventies and early eighties. Gene Dixon had her own damn show on TV where she would touch you on the head and mm. <clears throat> tell you what your grandmother's last name Maiden, it was just weird, but mm. they got involved, and so a lot of police resources got expended dealing with this crap, driving them around, let them <sighs> talk to family uh, members of the victims, taking them into crime scenes, and the cops will tell you it was a total waste of time, and we knew it, but it was just a thing back then, and we had to deal with it. So, who's pressuring them to use the psychics? Uh, the higher ups the mayor and the public service commissioner, and maybe even higher up than that, because George H.W. Bush was the vice president at the time. Mm -hmm. And President Reagan put him in charge of, hey, you oversee this Atlanta child murder thing. I want you regularly hanging out with the people who can tell you the facts about this. So they're just, they're exhausting. They're trying everything. All options here. Okay. Because, I mean, if you think about it at the time, an FBI profile wasn't any less ridiculous to a lot of people than right. than a psychic. That was just as much sorcery as yes. psychic. Yeah. Right. This made up bullshit to gotcha. them. And we know now that that's a lot more goes into FBI profiling mm-hmm. than but goes into being a psychic. That. They were they were yeah, building was, on that. It was they ongoing at the time. Yeah. Right. So we get into March and some other some other kids turn up missing in March. On March the 10th of 1981, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. hold a concert in the city of Atlanta to raise money for the victims' families and to raise money to help the city fund its special task force on missing and murdered children. Okay. And one thing that uh, Douglas tells in his book is he wanted to set up a situation where he felt like, I told you earlier, that he felt like the assailant the killer would insert himself into the investigation at some point. Mm. And so Douglas said, Hey, you know what we should do? We should put out a notice in the paper asking for extra security to come come to the concert. And everybody who's a black male from the ages of 25 to 30, who fills out an application, they get the job because we want to watch these people. We want them to fill out a bunch of paperwork and see what they'll tell us. Okay. Well, the problem with that is, that they don't get approval from Washington until the day before the concert, and by then it's too late to do it. Why did it take so long? What happened? Red tape, stupidity. Uh, What did he call it? He called it uh, uh, inertia. uh, What did he call it? I don't know, but the Uh, vice president has been charged with doing this. Yeah. You you don't have a direct line to him? Apparently not. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a paralysis of analysis. That's what (laughs) Douglas called it. That was too many case. people trying to get involved. He's being nice. Making, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he meant to say shit show, mm-hmm, but yeah. yeah, he said that in, instead. Uh, Muhammad Ali at one point offered a five hundred thousand dollar. I mean, he he added a four hundred thousand dollars to the one hundred thousand dollar reward mm-hmm. to make it half a million. Okay. Burt Reynolds donated money. Gladys Knight donated money. CNN is having a ball with this thing. I mean, they of CNN course. got on the map mm-hmm. because they are they are based in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and this case is happening every day, and they got twenty four hours to fill yeah. with news yeah. 
And that made every other network realize, hey, CNN's making a lot of hay with this Atlanta child murders thing. Mm -hmm. So all of the other networks get involved. And this is the spring, the winter into the spring of 81, around March, around my birthday uh, in March of, of 81. I turned 11 that year. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> um, in February, a kid named Patrick Baltazar is found strangled. And he becomes another key cog in the solution of this case because they find fibers and hairs on his body in different places on his clothing and in his shoes. And somebody has the, the wherewithal to pull these fibers out and save them for later. And it will turn out that a lot of those fibers that were found on Patrick Baltazar's body were found on a lot of the previous victims as well. Okay. This case is going to hinge. Katie and I were talking about this before we came over from Easy Street tonight. A lot of this case is going to hinge on, what do we call it? Trace evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's not a lot of eyewitness testimony. There's not a lot of direct physical evidence what happened, the way that the person who ends up in jail for, for life for this is because the carpet in his house matched some of these carpet fibers and dog hairs found on at least a dozen of these different victims. Well, and, and I think you have to at this point because you've got a predator and they're yes. hunting at night. That's correct. And no one, no one is seeing anything. That, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that, that about at night because that's one thing that I need to point out. Another part of that profile that they updated later, they added, this is probably someone who is a night person. Someone who has a, a job. He's out on the streets at night because all of these kids are missing. You know, everybody sees him for dinner that night and they're gone the next morning. So all these disappearances are happening late at night. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. Oh, and here's the bad news about all of that fiber that they found on Patrick Baltazar's body. Somebody on the task force inadvertently spilled the beans to the local media about that specific fact. And so everybody that they found after that was stripped and dumped in a river in an attempt to wash away as much of that fiber evidence so we as possible. The, we were on the right track there. Somebody was on the right track there. Mm -hmm. So the last six, I'm sorry, beginning in May of 1981, six of the last seven victims in the Atlanta child murders case, they were, they were, they were adult males. They were between the age of 20 and 28. It's almost like the killer had moved on from young children and wanted to do something a little bit different with his modus operandi. But he also dumped all of those bodies into either the South River or the Chattahoochee River. And there's one thing that's weird about Atlanta. Most big cities are built right on rivers because you need water for a huge population, right? But remember, we talked about Atlanta grew up and became the city that it was because it was a railroad junction. Mm -hmm. So the Chattahoochee River doesn't so much run through Atlanta as it circles the city on its perimeter and so 285, if you know anything about Atlanta, is the perimeter road around Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And in several places, 285 crosses the Chattahoochee River and the South River. And so that started to be a focus for the yeah, investigators. O OTP. What? That's what they call it on outside, Atlanta, outside the, the perimeter. Ah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my bad. I, I think I knew that, but I And forgot. so they're thinking that this suspect or this this killer yeah. is driving around the interstate and just stopping on maybe one of these bridges. Once that he's decided that, hey, they're, they're going to start pulling fibers off these bodies, I've got to wash them clean after I kill them. Mm -hmm. That's when they start driving around. Uh, that's when he starts supposedly maybe driving around and dumping these bodies into the rivers. Mm -hmm. 
And so, finally, the red tape, the paralysis analysis is overcome by the FBI and the APD. And they set up for one month, they're going to establish these bridge surveillance teams that are going to sit. There's going to be one guy sitting under the bridge all by himself with a radio. There's going to be two cars on either. There's going to be a car on either end of the bridge ready to respond to any call that this guy down below they, makes. They do this in Mindhunter. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a great scene. I, I don't know how accurate it is to the way it really happened, but there's but a great do, scene in season two of Mindhunter where they show this. And so they sit around for a month under these bridges on 285 over the Chattahoochee River and nothing happens. <sighs> it is May the 22nd, 1981. At 2.30 in the morning. This is the last day. They have run out of funds. They're about to cancel the program. They can't have all these people out sitting under bridges all night anymore. And a guy named uh, Bob Campbell, who is a police recruit, brand new guy, young kid. He's sitting under this bridge on the Chattahoochee River. Uh, It's on 285, the Jackson Parkway Bridge. And he hears a ginormous splash. Mm. He grabs the phone. He's looking up at the top of the bridge. For a minute, he doesn't see anything. And then he sees a pair of headlights come on. And a car slowly eases to the end of the bridge. Mm-mm. He's calling his guys. They see it right away. There, there hasn't been another car over that bridge in 20 minutes, they said later. So nobody's, there's no confusion about which car it's it was. It's this car. It's this car. Mm-hmm. And so that car turns around at one end of the bridge and slowly goes back across the other, all the way to the other end of the bridge again. This is so creepy. They pull him over. And it's a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon. Okay. They get the guy out and they ask him what he's doing there. They ask him if they know why he's been pulled over. And he says, this is probably about those missing boys, isn't it? Yikes. And his name is Wayne Bertram Williams. He is 23 years old. And we will tell you more about him next week. Oh my gosh. Cold chills. That, that's so creepy. Oh my gosh. All right, I can't wait till till the next part. Well, Katie is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting next week because a lot of it is a court case mm-hmm. and a lot of it is investigative stuff and if you guys want to jump in and do some more FBI profiling things, there's all kinds of juicy tidbits in the second half of this. Oh my goodness. So so everybody has homework. Yes. That's you what need I'm to you need to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need go to go watch season two of Mindhunter. Exactly. You need to go watch season or at least two of Mindhunter. Episodes seven, eight, and nine or whatever it is. You don't have to watch the whole thing if you're not into it, but you'll get You get you get that scene yeah. and you hear the splash. Yes. That they do they that. They do a great they job re- of recreating that, that, I think. So everybody go watch that. You'll be ready for next week. Yeah. Scott, that was a wonderful job. Awesome I learned job, Scott. So, yeah. Thank you. I learned so much today. Hey, me too. I'm ready for part two. I can't wait. Well, we'll do that again next week, right? Yep. Everybody visit us at our website, truecrimeoneasystreet.com. And you can email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com. Correct. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review or keep it to yourself. Yeah. Find if, us on social media. Follow us. Like all our stuff. You'll get... You'll get updates on what we're doing. That's what right. We're, what we're posting. That's we've right. Got, we've got t-shirts next door at Easy Street. If you want one, let us know. They're 20 bucks a piece. E- email us. Do that. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>